You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Spirits. Visit StarTrekSpirits.com today for the all-new Romulan Vodka and Romulan Rye. Take 10% off your order with special code Roddenberry at StarTrekSpirits.com. This episode is also sponsored by Toink.com. Get your exclusive Star Trek products like dishware, wine glasses, action figures, apparel, and more for your home at Toink.com. That's T-O-Y-N-K.com and use our code Roddenberry to take 15% off your order. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 482. Remember... Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, examining it for the morals, meanings, and messages, and asking if the whole thing stands up to the test of time. This week, remember, the one where Balana's dreams turn into nightmares and she relives someone else's painful history. John will be back with trivia in a moment, but first, I'll let you know how you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. But before we get into trivia... Here is a word from one of our sponsors this week, Star Trek Spirits. Norman, I am so happy that you know you and I have had the opportunity to taste and enjoy both products from Star Trek Spirits. It's also amazing to hear back from our listeners who have been trying Star Trek Spirits, the bourbon and the vodka. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing that catches them first is the incredible glassware, like that incredible bottle that looks like it walked right off set because, well, let's face it, they worked with the prop makers. They did the most incredible reproduction, highly accurate screen accurate and it's beautiful in its own right but then we've been able to kick back and do a little virtual tasting ourselves and a little virtual tasting with our listeners and uh, the product holds up so the more that we've talked about star trek spirits you already know the score limited edition individually numbered bottles and it took them years to get this right and honestly that work paid off because they are gorgeous And then what's better, they take those gorgeous bottles and they work with a world-class spirits team to make sure that the product inside is as good as the product on the outside. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we love doing is we love collecting things. We love collecting Mm -hmm. Star Trek props, especially when they're so screen accurate that you want to keep them on your countertop or in your collection or display them somewhere where you're proud to say, hey, look, I'm a Star Trek fan without actually saying I'm a Star Trek fan. So that's what these (laughs) bottles at Star Trek Spirits can do. I mean, aside from having wonderful product inside, you know, the Romulan vodka, the Romulan rye, they're both delicious spirits. But when you're done, one of the things that we actually don't mention is to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Very futuristic, Mm. very responsible Mm -hmm. of us. And you can take those screen-accurate, wonderfully produced prop bottles, reuse them, Refill them even with more product and then again, display them for all of your friends and fans to see. 
Yeah. So it, join us as we explore this universe together. It, it's the, the perfect combination of reimagining old classics and producing a line of spirits that will be sought out by spirits and Star Trek fans alike. And I need not remind you, they have sold out before. And they will sell out again. So make sure you get over there to StarTrekSpirits.com today to order the all-new Romulan Vodka and Romulan Rye. And exclusively for our listeners, you get to take 10% off your order with the special code Roddenberry. So remember, go to StarTrekSpirits.com and use the checkout code Roddenberry to take 10% off your order. And now... Here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, trivia for Remember. We have a story by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski. And, of course, we mentioned how Joe was back on staff and local as of Season 3 of Voyager. But here's what's most interesting about this script. It was actually a TNG script from way back. And the intention at the time was that Deanna Troy would be the one experiencing those invasive memories. Now, that story didn't get produced for TNG, uh, but when it finally was retooled for Voyager, the script assignment fell to Lisa Klink. So Lisa gets the teleplay credit here and adapted what Brannon and Joe had conceived, now making Balana the centerpiece of the story. It was directed by Wienrich Colby, and no surprise here, as we will see a lot of Rick in the director's chair. Both he and, well, girlfriend at the time, Kate Mulgrew, were very pleased with the focus on Pilana and letting Roxanne shine. Let's meet our guest stars. We have a multitude of new faces here, all of them playing our visiting Inarans, and we'll focus on a few of them. The Arnaran leader, Jorbrell, is played by Eugene Roche, who for five decades easily transitioned from comedy to drama, TV to feature film. And that's just the start because he also worked in theater, too, along with the likes of Bob Fosse. His first professional on-screen job was in the 1961 film Splendor in the Grass, and he appeared in the Chevy Chase vehicle Foul Play and the movie The Late Show. TV guest roles abound, and his voice turns up anywhere from Batman to Carmen Sandiego. Dathan Alaris, who we meet in flashback, is played by Charles Estern. We actually did meet him way back in TNG's sixth season in the episode Rightful Air, in which he played the Klingon Divok. We also meet Jessen, who has her eye on Harry Kim. She is played by Athena Massey. Athena started her on-screen work in the early 90s, and she's one of those actors who is perfectly capable of doing her own stunts, which you can see in movies like Cybertracker 2. She also turns up in comedies, anywhere from Doogie Howser to Seinfeld to the Eddie Murphy version of The Nutty Professor. Jora Mirel is played by Eve Brenner, who got her start back in the 1950s. In fact, one of her first gigs was on the original The Adventures of Superman. The occasional role came her way, and then in the 1980s, her on-screen career took off again with a number of TV roles, from Quantum Leap to the revived Twilight Zone series. She lends her voice to The Great Mouse Detective and has continued working in the last few years with spots on The Rookie, the comedy series Baskets, and the new Magnum P.I. That one is for you, Norm. And finally, uh, one of those actors who everyone was looking forward to working with 
was Bruce Davison here as Jareth in Flashback. Bruce is maybe most recognizable to genre audiences from roles like Senator Kelly in the X-Men movies. He has one of those careers that's just impossible to put into a capsule here. He got his start in theater while living in Pennsylvania, made his way to Broadway, and then was appearing in his first on-screen role in 1969 in Last Summer alongside Barbara Hershey and Richard Thomas. Genre credits include appearances on The Outer Limits, V, and Tales from the Crypt, and so many more. I mean, it's hard to tune into anything without catching Bruce somewhere. And this is not his final Trek appearance either. He did appear in a fan film, and we will catch him again in Enterprise. Nothing in this episode would have happened to a computer with read-only memory. Captain Janeway and Voyager are escorting a group of Inaran passengers from their colony in the FEMA system to their home world of Inara Prime. In exchange for Voyager's hospitality, several Inaran engineers have shared their energy conservation technology and their friendship with Voyager's crew. Harry and Balana are working closely with Jessen, one of the Inaran engineers, and Jorah Morell, one of the Inaran elders. In a short time, Harry and Jessen have become quite friendly with one another. Harry invites everyone to dinner, but Jorah excuses herself for the evening. So too does Balana, as to not cramp Harry's style. Later in her quarters, and in the midst of a dream, Balana is in the throes of passion with a young Inaran male who calls her Karenna. However, Balana's dream is interrupted by Chakotay, standing above her in her quarters, and wondering why she's 20 minutes late for her duty shift. Act 1. Balana and Chakotay hustle down a corridor to main engineering. All the while, she explains to him that there's nothing to be concerned about, well, for the two times that this has happened so far. Balana admits that she's been having these intensely sensual and very real dreams about an Anarin and no one from the group they are escorting home. Sensing that Balana is a bit embarrassed about this whole affair, Chakotay remarks that he'll overlook a disciplinary report for now and will remain discreet concerning her secret affair. Later, a very sharply dressed Tom and Harry enter the mess hall, wondering why Neelix has kept it closed all afternoon. To their surprise, the mess hall has been transformed into something very colorful. Neelix appears and greets them to his interpretation of Inara, explaining that the decor, the music, the slightly chilly temperature, the lack of seating, and the food for this evening's festivities were specially prepared in honor of their Inaran guests. Across the room, Jorah Morell is seated next to Captain Janeway, who is enthralled by the musical performance of another Anaran elder, Jor Brell. He hands her the instrument and encourages her to try, and she does, almost expertly so, catching the attention of Tuvok, who is seated next to Brell. Brell admits that Janeway's sudden surge of talent was due to him telepathically linking with her in a way where she could share his memories and experiences. Brell apologizes profusely for overstepping, explaining what he did was innocently reflexive to Anarans since they are a telepathic species. When Chakotay saddles up to Neelix's station, they both wonder where Balana is, and Chakotay wages a good guess that she's gone to bed early. Balana is indeed asleep and in the midst of another dream. 
This time, she, as Karenna, is being chastised by her father, Jareth, who appears to be a very powerful and authoritative man, but also loving and compassionate towards her. He warns her off of seeing Danith again because they are just incompatible. After Jareth leaves, Danith sneaks in from behind a curtain, but shortly after their passionate embrace, Karina recoils in horror at seeing Danith's badly burned face, causing Balana to wake up in a cold sweat. Act 2 The next day, after updating Chakotay on the current Anarn engineering upgrades, Balana confesses to him that her dreams have taken an unexpected turn. In greater detail, she tells him that she saw her lover, the Anarn man, in her dreams, dead and badly burned. Balana also explains that these dreams feel like they are chapters in a story, and each new dream reveals something new, like how she has to sneak around Jareth, Karen's father, just to meet with Dathan in secret. Chakotay is concerned that whatever is happening to Balana may be the result of the Anarans being a telepathic species and is worth the captain's attention. After leaving Chakotay's office, Balana is swept away in a waking dream. This time, she is standing in the Anaran town square. Her father stands atop a podium, speaking to a group of young Anarans and congratulating them on being the first step towards a brighter future. He then awards Karenna with a medallion, an award for these young Anaran leaders who are being groomed to usher in a new era for their people. After the ceremony, Karenna is surprised by Dathan, who keeps his distance from her. They both confess that as much as they love each other, things are changing between them. He risks getting closer to her to telepathically show her how he still feels, but their connection is interrupted as Dathan is forced to leave the town square as the curfew bell rings, calling all lower-class citizens to show their IDs and to leave the city. Back in the present, Kess kneels over an unconscious Balana and calls sickbay to respond to a medical emergency. Act 3. In sickbay, Balana comes to while being examined by the EMH and Kess, while Captain Janeway looks on with great concern. The doctor explains that her dreams are in fact memories that are being implanted into her subconscious and manifest themselves when she's asleep, hence the dreams, which Balana is adamant about seeing through because of the deep emotional connection she's made with Karenna. However, the doctor insists that Balana wear a cortical inhibitor to prevent any further risk of brain damage, which will unfortunately inhibit any future dreaming. Janeway is concerned that the Anarn's telepathy is connected to what is happening, especially after experiencing her telepathic connection earlier with Jor Brell. Later in her ready room, Janeway meets with Brell, who insists that whatever is happening to Balana isn't being done purposefully. In fact, he even goes as far as explaining that such a high population of Anarns in one place creates a type of telepathic network where bits and pieces of the collective memories of all Anarns on board Voyager can be the cause of what Balana is absorbing and manifesting in her dreams. After Brell leaves, Tuvok advises Janeway that his explanation is plausible, but he knows Janeway well enough that she wants to press her investigation further. Balana volunteers to approach both Jason and Jorah Morell, the two Anarans who she has become closest with while working with them in engineering, but Janeway waves her off and orders her to rest and distance herself from the situation. That evening, as Voyager approaches Anara and the crew assembles for a farewell dinner event before their Anaran guests depart, Balana is in her quarters, restless and impatient, and decides to remove the cortical inhibitor to allow the dreams to continue. As she falls asleep, the dreams come rushing in. 
Some time has passed, and now she's with her father, who is educating her on the differences between them and the regressives, those Anarans who have chosen an unclean path and a different lifestyle, devoid of antiseptics and sterilization technology. Later in the town square, Karenna is organizing the relocation of several regressives when she hears that Dathan's name is on one of the lists. And before she can confront her father about it, Karenna is knocked down by an unruly regressive who badly cut her cheek in the process. Balana is snapped out of her sleep and after placing her hand on her cheek, realizes who is manipulating her dreams. She races to find Jorah Morel, and upon entering her quarters, Balana finds Morel unconscious on the floor. Morel comes to and reveals that in fact she is Karenna, and before she dies, she pleads with Balana to keep her memories alive. Karenna then grabs Balana by the back of the neck and imparts the last of her memories, returning Balana to Karenna's room and playing the same kind of musical instrument we saw at the Anarans' dinner party. Act 4. In the midst of practicing her musical instrument, Karenna is interrupted by a familiar rapping on her bathroom window. It's Dathan, who is rain-soaked, scared, and determined to convince Karenna to come with him. More specifically, to prove to her that her father is part of a criminal conspiracy to do away with the regressives. Dathan tells her about members of his family who were supposedly relocated but never made it to these resettlement colonies, who were boarded onto transports that went nowhere but instead were used as mass vaporization chambers to eliminate regressives by the thousands. He told Karenna that she had two choices, believe his story or believe that her father is innocent. Just then, Jareth checks in on her and reassures her that what they are doing, relocating the regressives to their new colonies, is the right thing. Jareth can see that Karenna is unsettled by this whole affair, and he continues to explain that no matter how innocent the regressives may seem, they behave this way because it serves their purposes to more easily spread their dissent, their disorder, and their lies, just like that boy, Dathan, that Karina loves so much. And once Jareth wins over Karenna's loyalty back to his side, she looks right at the bathroom door, and Jareth discovers Dathan hiding there who Jareth captures and takes away to the town square, where Karenna and many others bear witness to Dathan's execution alongside several other criminal regressives, a death which bears a striking resemblance to Balana's earlier nightmare when she saw the melted flesh on Dathan's face. And when the crowd began cheering at the deaths of Dathan and the regressives, Karenna cheered alongside them. Sometime later, Karenna stands next to the town square's gated entrance and teaching a group of young students about the regressives, explaining that it was their strange way of life and their resistance to new technology which ultimately caused all of the regressives to ultimately die out from their own self-destruction. And after experiencing that last memory, Balana wakes, but only to find the real Karenna Morel dead on the floor next to her. Act 5 Unable to control her outrage, Balana storms into the Anarans' farewell party and accuses Brel and all of the Anarans gathered in the mess hall of murder, of conspiracy to bury the truth regarding the regressives and reframing what happened to them as if their annihilation was their own doing. Brel is beside himself and looks to Janeway to somehow control Balana's tirade, but the captain wants any misunderstandings out in the open. Even Harry tries to convince Jessen to at least listen to what Balana has to say. However, all Balana has in her defense is intangible, even if true. And Brel, along with the rest of the Anarans, stand firm that what Balana claims to have happened either isn't true, or that whatever distorted memories that Karenna Morel imparted to Balana were just those of a confused old woman. 
Either way, Bellana has no proof to back up her accusations, and her confrontation with Brel, Jessen, and the Anarans only ended with Janeway being caught in the middle of a very delicate political situation. Later in Janeway's ready room, Bellana pleads her case one last time, and even though Janeway believes her story and that of Corinna Morell, she explains to Bellana that she has no jurisdiction over the events that happened to the Anaran people. And based on the doctor's autopsy of Morell, there's no evidence of any criminal wrongdoing. So in short, Janeway's hands are indeed tied in regards to what action she's allowed to take. But she does encourage Bellana to seek out the remaining Anaran engineers just in case there are any final words she'd like to share with them. Wink, wink. Picking up what the captain was putting down, Bellana heads to engineering and finds Jessen and tries to explain what happened to Corinna Morell. But Jessen is steadfast and stubborn and wants no part in what Bellana has to say. So Bellana chains tactics and offers Jessen the opportunity to telepathically link with her so that she doesn't have to take Bellana's word at face value. She can take Corinna's memories instead. And she does. As we see Jessen, now as Corinna, wake up to the all-too-familiar sounds of a rapping at her bathroom window. It is a handsome young Anarin who consumes her in the throes of passion. The end. Nicely done, Norman. Right at the top of the show, I, you know, I'm so happy for Harry Kim to have a little, a little spark, potential, a little romance there. Wait, I, I, hang on, Wait, wasn't there? Oh, there's somebody, uh, uh, Libby, mm. was it? Maybe his girlfriend that he was uh, passionately in love with that we got a, a glimpse of. Does he? I, I barely remember her. Does he barely remember her at this well, point? You know, I don't know who Harry's smiling <laughs> towards or about, but at timestamp one minute, uh-huh. 10 second, Harry looks up and smiles mm. right at Jess. And I'm like, what's up, Harry? You yeah. slick guy. Yeah. Um, it's good to see. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see. Yeah. Uh, I love this exchange earlier on. Uh, so Jessen says, maybe mm-hmm. Harry could give us a hand. And then Bellana says, well, I'm sure he would if you asked him. And that's Starfleet for, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the helpful translation yeah, there. Sure. And you know what? Kind of cool to see Bellana get the hint yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, I'm going to help you with this and then I'm going to duck out. Because that's the kind of friend that I ha- am. Harry won't be like rude and say like, uh, "Don't come to dinner with us." He's of course going to invite them to dinner. No, oh, right. right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Although that that could also be in character for Bellana, just like, "Oh no, sounds good. I'm coming along with dinner uh, with you," mm-hmm. and it just sit there the whole time and just completely mess with Harry's game. That would be in character for her right. as well. By the way, wasn't it in Persistence of Vision that Bellana's dreams were also pretty uh, intense? There's, you know, there, there's some passion there. There's some intensity lurking in that Klingon Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, yeah. So we've had this a couple of times in Bellana. I want to point out a little technical thing, a director's thing here. That is a very fast walk and talk down the corridor to engineering. Usually because, A, you have limited space to do it in, and B, like you don't want to move the camera too much. Usually those are a bit more leisurely mm-hmm. to, to keep it contained, but they're just – they're trucking, man. That is – it gives a nice intensity to that moment. When uh, Dakota is kind of like responding to what Bellana is kind of like confessing about the dreams and them being stimulating and et cetera – when you watch Robert act, yeah. is this one of those moments where he's just kind of tongue-in-cheeky, kind of 
you know, being just Robert as opposed to Chakotay. Because the way he, I mean, really kind of look at his reactions. You're like, he's having fun with this scene. He's really chewing the scene. They let him do that every now and then. And it, it it's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, it doesn't seem totally in line with Chakotay to have that sly sense of humor. But when you get it out of him, it's it's nice to see. I hope that there is more of that to come. Got to say, I love the redress of the mess hall. And I am in favor of anything that brings back a Nehru jacket. I think everybody looks good. Or maybe in Harry Kim's case, it's more of that original Pierre Cardin, early Beatles, collarless mm-hmm. jacket. It, it yeah. looks good. Looks great. And just in general, it's nice to see everybody out of uniform and their civilian clothes, but dressed up. Like it, it's a cool. I have so look. much to say about this scene. So uh, first of all, you and yeah. I got to cosplay what mm-hmm. Tom and Harry were wearing. <gasps> oh, right? dude! Yes, yes, a hundred percent. That'll be for a big uh, Delta Flyers right. crossover episode. Because they looked phenomenal. Yeah. The fashion in this entire they scene did. was so good. I mean, Kate's white pantsuit mm-hmm. was phenomenal. Yeah. Right? She looked, looked amazing. amazing. Even Tupac yeah. looked great in his little you know, like multicolored dinner jacket. The cut was like right on. That is uh, rad. Yeah, right? Yes. So, I mean, yeah. I'm not a big fan of kind of like the, the future styling, the future fashion that Star Trek usually did in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Jake Sisko's wardrobe, I'm looking at you. But <laughs> I, I thought that everything looked so good in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. They really did. It's it's full of color and life, and it and it, it feels it, it feels mm-hmm. natural. I, I think there's a lot to do with the staging, with the decor. Like it, it, sometimes I'm right there with you. Sometimes it feels kind of two dimensional when when you see our characters in their casual yeah. clothes. It just it, it doesn't feel right. real, you know. I gotta say, you know, being a music fan myself, I, I just I love this whole exchange. You know, watch me while I play my space bowl, Captain Janeway. Would you like to play the space bowl? And then she does. She plays the space oh my bowl. God. So that's pretty mm-hmm. pretty awesome. And I love it was a piece of alien future tech. I love the hand sanitizers because I actually in my kitchen right now. I don't know if you have one that little stainless steel mm-hmm. bar that you use and it gets garlic smell off of your hands. So, like, you can wash your hands, but you use this little thing, and it gets the, the garlic smell off your hands. But stainless steel has that property. It'll do it. But these, I, I'm just going to call it right now, uh, those are space balls. Uh, that, uh, yeah, yep. the chick. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. You Sorry. Had, to. Ha- had to. Had to. But that, yep. that's what they I, are. Yeah. Just important. But prop-wise, though, yeah. um, if uh, anyone has actually used those, they're really good. Um, I know that in Chinese medicine, you use those to practice your dexterity and to kind of like work out people that have arthritis or things of, or, or hand issues. Yep. And if you do it really yep. well, you can actually make them sing. Yeah, right. And I make mine yeah. sing. That's great. Anybody know. has that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> anybody has that yeah. talent, you let us know. You know, it's worth pointing out, like, okay, we're in an episode where it probably would be too expensive to do a ton of alien makeup because there are a lot of people in the show. You have a lot of uh, guest stars and extras. So we let the head wraps do the yeah, work. Yeah, you know, I, I saw these and, and I had to make yeah. a note, you know, yes. where – So you have an episode yes. that has to do with dream manipulation and then aliens with a lot of head mm-hmm. headdress, head wrap. Yeah. Not prosthetics going on, but the headdresses. And I'm like, 
All right, so there's a little bit of ex post facto that's being lifted here. A little bit, just a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, just, maybe a just a little. Uh, yeah. Taran juice looks oddly mm-hmm. enough like Romulan ale. Uh, you know? That it does. You, you could you could sub out mm-hmm. one for the other. StarTechSpirits.com. <laughs> yeah, they have a new product. Taran <laughs> yeah. juice. Just saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. They don't even know it. <laughs> uh, I do yeah. love like the the wall hanging that's behind Bolana in Chakotay's office when she's telling him about her dreams or, or what's mm-hmm. happening because. It's just native tribal enough to pass, but not specific yeah. to be any one particular tribe. So I thought that, you know what? At least they're getting that right. So I like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I Actually, it's a weird little note, but I, I also like just the arrangement of that room because his desk is perpendicular to the window. And very often, like, they set up the desk where the mm-hmm. window is to their back. So you have this kind of dramatic shot, but I, I like the staging of that to break it up from the way it's usually done. I do like, you know, Bellata says, well, if the dreams stop, I'll never know what happened to these people. I'm like, yeah, what if it's even worse than you expect? Oh, right. guess what? It's worse, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, the, yeah, I love the doctor trying to like, talk knew, her but, out of it. Uh, the, the, the dream inhibitor the prop itself looks a lot like the cortical device they used on Tuvok in flashback to monitor his uh, his cortical fluctuations. So I'm just wondering, right. cortical th- means this prop. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and by the way, uh, a dream inhibitor is something that you would not want. Like I'm somebody who does not mm-hmm. remember my dreams, at least not very often at all. But yeah, if you prevent somebody from dreaming, uh, they're going to wake up the next day. A, a wreck <laughs> and if you do that over a long term who knows mm, what the effects true, would be true. not good not good there are so many strong scenes to point out in this episode really chilling scene Jareth explaining everything that is wrong about mm-hmm. the regressives uh, to his daughter Corinna slash Milana um, just pointing that out leave that there because there are more to revisit but th- that one every time I watched it just I got completely yeah, sucked I, into um, it. I really did like kind of the the revelation that happened in that scene with with Jareth and, and, and mm-hmm. Corinna. I think that after a yeah. certain moment, like in that scene, you realize why they cast a Bruce Davison for that particular look. Yeah. And yeah. then you can't yeah. you can't watch this episode any other way but as it now is intended <laughs> because of a scene like that mm-hmm. and because of certain casting yeah. choices and certain looks. Here's yeah. a weird note, though, that I'm the, – the note itself is not weird. Like the transition is weird between Acts mm-hmm. 3 and mm-hmm. 4. So uh, Karena or Jor Morel pulls Bellana close to her to give her the last memories. And then Act 3 ends with yeah. Bellana as Karina playing the instrument and then fades. Then it opens up with the same scene that fades in. But it feels like Act 3 just ends on a less dramatic note because of that. Yep. Yeah, I'm so glad you pointed that out because there's a few places in this episode where you've got transitions, you know, the the break to commercial where you're not really ending Mm -hmm. on that action cliffhanger. It's a sort of a moment. And sometimes that's really effective. It's not as dramatic a choice here as it can be. But I'm glad you noted those. Uh, Let's see. Burrell says... Corinna Morell is dead when when uh, when Bellana like reveals like what happened. As far as I yeah. know, she's only been known as Jorah Morell. 
So doesn't that kind of tip his hand mm. as to, I know who she is, therefore I know what she knows? Uh, so Tuvok should be uh, like, uh, but yeah. I thought her name was Jorah Morell. I'm, I was waiting for Tuvok to do, you know, Inspector Tuvok at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Inspector Tuvok. Um, love it. I do love how Harry comes like right to the defense of Bellana when she's obviously she's outnumbered and she's outgunned and she obviously looks like she's unstable. But Harry is like, I've worked with her. I know her. I trust her. At least listen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's I know that they're kind of drifting away from that relationship. The the Harry and Bellana Starfleet Maquis relationship that they established at the beginning. But I like that it's still there. And I do like that if if for anything. Kate's performance at the end, just kind of like the way that she looks at Bellana and says, I can't do anything legally, but maybe you can talk to somebody just in case and just watch Kate just the way that she acts. Like she kind of nudges Roxanne with her eyes, like do something right, without actually saying what she has to do. Why do you organics always have to harbor some dark secret? With the musical sphere and the cool clothes, this was all shaping up to be a groovy trip. But no, you had to go ruin it. Hey, we'll get right back to remember after a brief word from this week's sponsor, Toink, toink toink.com. I, I love our stuff from Toink, Norman. Love it. I mean, love it. Look, so we, we both – we love to rock the uh, the TOS bathrobes. You got the red. I got the blue. I, I think we made a good color choice there. And uh, those are the – we got the waffle weave, but they also have the terry cloth, which looks so cool. And you get them in blue, red, or the, the gold uh, for a command if you uh, – you know, if you want to give yourself an upgrade, a rank upgrade, you can. I want to point out something that I got too, which I just got to see on screen. So by the time this comes out, Picard season three has started, and Mm -hmm. uh, there is a shot of this dinnerware that has the 25th century Starfleet logo on it. And those dishes, they were commissioned by Secret Hideout, by, you know, Alex Kurtzman's company, for a dinner scene in the the opening, the first episode of – Picard season three. So like Ooh. you can have that, like you can have those dishes and it, they are completely authentic. They are absolutely the real deal. They're incredible looking. And, and Toink has just done a great job of sourcing, not only the fun kind of everyday stuff, but also these high end, uh, like kitchenware and houseware items that allow you to wear your fandom on your sleeve a little bit. I mean, I love that. I think we're at this really wonderful like time as fans and as collectors where we want to, uh, you know, we show off our fandom in the best way possible with these like, you know, pitch perfect screen accurate recreations of what they're using, like on the show. I think that's the best way to be able to show off your fandom, but do it in that, you know, a little bit more avant-garde, stylish way yeah. you know, of of showing off your fandom. And you can do it any which way you want. Yeah. I mean, I love, like, I, I received um, a, a set of the stainless steel kitchen containers. Yeah. Uh, they are they are screen uh, printed with the TNG Delta on top of the lids, mm-hmm. uh, and they have these wonderful stickers on there. These Elcar stickers that just—it looks like if you were in the galley, yeah, of the D, right? That they would be yeah. there holding uh, loose leaf Earl Grey tea Ooh. for Captain Picard if he doesn't want to replicate it. Good call. 
Very good mm-hmm. call. I like that. Yeah. Well, and what's most fun about what they have at Toink.com is that you can get that stuff and get the daily use stuff. And then there's also fun things, you know, puzzles and journals and posters, just a lot of fun stuff really created by the fans for the fans. Everything there is officially licensed. They have exclusive releases. Here's one of the most exciting things. All right. So a lot of their items, if you look for the little blue icon next to it, you get uh, buy three, get one free. So if you're buying for yourself or you're buying for gifts, that is a great way to do it. Everybody gets a free gift with a $50 or more purchase. They have free shipping in the contiguous U.S. They have a rewards program so you can earn while you shop. And here's the best part of all. You get to take 15% off your order with code Roddenberry at checkout. So get your exclusive Star Trek products like dishware, wine glasses, action figures, apparel, like bathrobes, <laughs> and more for your home at toink.com. That's T-O-Y-N-K.com. And use our Roddenberry code to take 15% off your order. Norman, you brought up something in the last segment. I, I love when we do this. Like, like You drop a little nugget in the last segment, mm-hmm. and then it, it, it perfectly segues into something to dig a little deeper into in this in our discussion point. You talked about Janeway giving that little that little wink nod to Alana, like, look, I can't do anything about this, but yeah, I'm not going to tie your hands if you just want to go talk to someone. Can't stop you from doing that. And I feel like this episode does something really nicely as a change of pace with Janeway. Because up until now, we have so often called out Janeway's behavior, just asking each other, like, wait, does she have the right to do this? Does she have the right to step in here, assume kind of moral authority, mess with things, and then take off? Because ultimately, the mission is just to get back home, right? So uh, Voyager, as well, people like the Kazon have pointed out, they leave this path of destruction in their wake and then they go, right? But, but Janeway has this sense of uh, maybe the, the right phrase isn't moral entitlement, but sometimes it's the right word for it, to take action, to do a thing, right? And in this episode, they downplay a lot of that. And there isn't that sense of like urgency very often in the matter with her. The urgency is all on Balana and and her dealing with the emotional reality of what she's going through. So, you know, Balana comes to her about the dreams and at first Jane was just like, hey, you know, we'll we'll look into it. We'll, you know, Tuvaka work on it. We'll we'll do a little investigation. She kind of, you know, plays it down a little bit. And then later as we get to the end, it's like almost you get the feeling of like, well, we just, we got to let him go. We don't have any authority here. We can't do anything about it, but, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) you could go Mm -hmm. talk. And I think that very effectively comes down to the crux of the whole situation in this episode, which is really asking yourself how far your responsibility goes. Voyager itself has no place here, has no authority here. So like, what good is their moral outrage? And what do you do with that when you have it? You can see all the all the ways we'll, we'll get into what this story is actually a, a parallel with you know but but here's milana given this information here's janeway seeing the situation but doesn't have hard evidence to do anything about it and even if she did have hard evidence about it what do you get to do when you size up the situation you're morally outraged 
and then you can't do anything about it. Um, that's a good question, and I like the way how you, you framed all of that because at the end of the episode, it's about what can you do and how far you can get away with being able to – being able to exercise your sense of moral justice, you know, on the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the most difficult thing for Janeway this entire episode is that whatever the Anarns were doing never really affected her directly. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where she didn't have kind of like the leg up on the situation. Uh, Brell, uh, when he innocently telepathically linked with Janeway and kind of gave her that push to play the instrument just a little bit better than she should have. Mm -hmm. No harm, no foul, mea culpa. That happened. He's like, I am so sorry. That shouldn't have happened. We were just sharing. We're a sharing people. Okay. She's like, okay, I get it. I get it. It was a little intense, but that's fine. And then afterwards, there are all these examples of, well, maybe this is what's happening to Balana. Maybe she's just picking up some stray thoughts because there are, you know, maybe a hundred of Anarans on there and we're just transmitting throughout the ship really powerfully. It's not her fault. It's not our fault. It is. And we're sorry, you know? Yeah. Um, all of that, though, is leading to this wonderful, you know, uh, uh, this this culmination of, like, these gaslighting examples of maybe what Brell is, uh, has masterminded this entire time. Yeah. Maybe. But at the same time, though, Janeway's like, he hasn't done anything specifically to me directly where I, as the captain, can say he's violated X, you know, a situation with Y behavior. And I'm sorry, Balana, but on paper, you don't have any proof. Yeah. Well, right? the, it, 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 let, I'm sorry to interrupt. Let, let me complicate things further here by saying that, you, you know, you, you use the term masterminded. And I wonder, though, like. Voyager's situation is essentially that is our point of view is through Voyager. They're coming at mm -hmm. this decades after the fact. All right. Yeah. So the the quote unquote regressives are gone. There is no there is no regressive to rescue. There's nobody to bring back. Their society is humming along just fine. And the worst we can say about their future is that well, they've done it before. They could do it again. Look at mm -hmm. our own history, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but but there, there's nobody. There's not a situation here to fix. So is it even masterminding a thing, or is it just living out the reality of where they are? Like they're they're living on this colony. Their prime planet is again presumably just sort of working the way it works. We can all be outraged about the history, as we should, but even from their point of view, is there anything to cover up in that respect, to mastermind a perception in that respect? Because to them, it's it's a generation ago. I mean, I, I see where you're getting at mm -hmm. with that, but I, I think I, I am going to push back a little bit on the, is there anything Good. to fix? I think there is something to fix. And I think that history has to be a record of what happened, yeah. not a record of what people believe should be promoted as the only like the greatest hits of one civilization, mm -hmm. right? You yeah. know, as a matter of fact, it's kind of like, you know, we're getting to that big point in the discussion where um, this is in, in, in many ways – you know, a, a parable or a uh, comparison to the Holocaust, yep. you know, the, the, what the the, um, the final solution of the Third Reich, you know, I mean, there was a point in the story where, where Danith was saying, like, you know, 
essentially, I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying because I think it makes more sense from a Holocaust term. He's saying that we were like loaded into the showers with no water. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. He said that, yep. you know, my family, they were loaded into these transports that went nowhere. When I saw that and when I heard that, I couldn't watch this episode the same way twice. Oh, my God. I, I, right. Yeah. That, that is – it was a moment that you feel in the pit of your stomach uh, right. for sure. And and I'm, I'm glad you said it because, yes, that, that was exactly the note that I wrote. It says, you know, it is not hard to watch this as the Holocaust story that it is and the Holocaust denial story that is, which is yeah. equally as chilling, which is equally as disturbing, you know. And then, no, but going back, but I'm saying, but going oh, yeah, back to yeah, what yeah, you're yeah. saying about like if there needs to be something that needs to be fixed, it's like yes, because we can't deny, right, that this part of history happened as much yeah. as some people do, yeah. which is mind-boggling to me, yeah, because you know there is proof beyond a shadow yeah. of a doubt that it happened. Well, because but, it, because it fits the political agenda, that that's why you know that's well, what, sure. you know just as it does for them for the Anarans, you know, right? And that, but I think that with the outrage that that Balana experienced, she's like, you know what. If no one speaks up for what happened to a group of people that were, you know, that they were they were terrorized and murdered and annihilated and not because of their own doing, right, then yeah. there is a great atrocity that happened that no one remembers. Yeah. And even if you can't do anything about it, it still should be remembered as part of the history. Well, and that's the very weird part. So I, I, I framed it as saying, you know, this happened a generation ago, this happened decades ago, but there are people alive <laughs> who remembered it or else we wouldn't have this the story that we do here uh who walk around with that memory as something very fresh from their younger days you know we are getting to a point now in our lives in the early 21st century where a lot of the last people who survived the holocaust are going to be gone but let's say that this that we're doing this episode 30 years ago, <laughs> as nearly as old as this episode of Voyagers. A lot more people were alive then who actually experienced that, who went through it, or who saw the immediate after effects of that, new people who were affected by that directly. We're getting further and further away from that point where, again, you know, total agreement here about the reality of the situation. It has to be exposed, has to be discussed. One other thing that I'll bring up that I thought was a modern connection here is that we live in a time here in the early 21st century where we are having discussions about what topics can and can't be taught in the schools and what books are being banned in school libraries, et cetera, et cetera. Or burned. Or burned, yeah. Yeah, frighteningly so. And I, I go right back to this as the, the central premise of this story, that there is an absolute horror to denying and reshaping, uh, reframing any count of, any point of history just to fit a political narrative. And mm-hmm. uh, so this story, as much as it is a Holocaust story, it is equally applicable to something like that today. I have uh, something that I wanted to ask you, and uh, and I want to see what the audience's take as well. So I'm looking forward to the, the emails. But mm-hmm. this is something it, – it's because we're in the Delta Quadrant and because we have Starfleet, I should say. Mm-hmm. Starfleet has a certain moral code, you know, and we as humans, as the audience, understand and kind of live our lives vicariously through the Starfleet moral code. But does that moral code, and in this case consent, apply to alien races? 
Okay, so hmm. this is where I'm going with that. Okay. So there was a scene where where Captain Janeway, you know, she said, I love your music. I wish I learned how to play. And then all of a sudden, um, Jorbrell yeah. makes that telepathic connection with Janeway and pushes her in a way where she became uncomfortable. But then it's excused away because he's like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. It was innocent. Uh, won't happen again. But he did. Yeah. And he did it in such a way where it was intrusive because a telepathic link to what Tuvok said was – or asked, he says, your abilities allow you to transfer knowledge from your own mind to another's. Mm-hmm. And he and Brell said, not precisely we're able to share our experiences through a telepathic link. It seems like that's kind of you know the same but <laughs> yeah. different. Yeah, <laughs> six one half dozen the other, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then later on in Captain Janeway's ready room when she's talking to Brell about what happened to Balana, Brell said – I find it impossible that any of us, meaning the Anarans, could be doing this purposefully. Yeah. And Tuvok says, you do possess the ability to share your experiences without mutual consent. Mm-hmm. And then Brell said, yes, but it's just not done. I know that we had a misunderstanding before. Captain, but I assure you, we have strict ethics. To who? Hmm. Strict ethics to who? To ourselves? To the morality of the Delta Quadrant? Yeah. You know? So how do the ethics of an alien race applied to the ethics of Starfleet or the human race. That's interesting. I mean, I I guess in watching that scene a few times, I was trying to maybe give them the benefit of the doubt with that moment. Because, like, dramatically, we have to set up the idea that this is a thing that can happen, and it can Mm -hmm. happen without consent. And maybe, just maybe, in their culture, somebody saying as simply as, Oh, I wish I could do that. That 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 is enough of an invitation. That is enough of a mutual understanding to say, I can share that with you. Now, to us watching from the outside, <laughs> nobody, you know, he does not say to Janeway, "I can share that with you," and here's how. But maybe that is something that to the Anarans is perfectly acceptable, culturally okay for them to do. But I, I, yeah, I, I, we need to see it as, for the scene to work, we need to see it as both a violation, but we also need to see it as something that is meant innocently. And, and the yeah. reason why I bring this up again is because technically Balana's mind was violated by Karina mm-hmm. you know, or Jorah Morell because she didn't ask to be put through all of this trauma like, you know, inhabiting, you know, these memories, these dreams. And of course, it was done for a purpose. But I think that's why at the end, Balana gives Jessen permission, permission mm-hmm. to be able to make that link. Yeah. So like, look, yeah. I am doing this of my own volition of I am I am offering you this as a almost kind of like as a peace offering so that, you know, I'm not there's no subterfuge here. Like you can read all of my thoughts because all of my thoughts now contain Corinna Morell's thoughts. Yeah. Even though that she pushed those on me and I didn't want to, like, I don't want these anymore. Can you just take them away from me? But I just felt that there was a, a, a clumsy way of saying, Oh, we did something wrong. Sorry to something was really done wrong, but for the right reasons to, yeah. okay, now we're going to do it for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But, but I, I think you, know? you need those contrasting points to to get at the gist of what they're doing. I, I do want to point out, you know, the, this episode does a really interesting job. It's like a, a case study in othering 
another group of people. It, it is really about that. I mean, we hear this line, those who live their lives without a communications interlink or a microfusion generator, you know, that, and that, that's just the mildest of othering that group. And, yeah. and in, why would you want to do that? Yeah. Oh, imagine the <laughs> yeah. very thought of it, you know, and in, in some ways, this script can seem frustrating because everything about the political nature of the Anarans is very vague. You know, they're, they're presented as very close to humans, which, you know, we talked about the makeup and all that, but I, I think that can be effective when you do it like you do it here. And the fascist imagery of the ones in control is very evident, if a little toned down sometimes, which again is fine because we're doing science fiction as parable here. But very interesting that the ones who are the outcasts are, you know, regressive, great choice of words here. And we don't know much about the how or why. And that is, again, so interesting to me in the sense that you can just insert whatever other you want to in that case. So seeing Jareth manipulate his daughter by claiming the aggressives are manipulating the truth is so utterly chilling <laughs> because it's one side justifying their own absolutely horrific position uh, capped by, has he told you he's in love with you? He's not. It's his way of gaining your sympathy. I've seen him talking to a number of women. My God, this was an intense scene. And Bruce and Roxanne, marvelous in it. Bravo. But it shows the depth of not just in the public political sphere, othering someone, but the, the intimacy, the intimate level that that can happen where just in a moment, insert this othering of someone else into the person who is listening. It absolutely gives chills up my spine. I mean, there are two things that aren't mentioned by name, but, you know, an astute, you know, viewer will see gaslighting is happening at an, you know, at a record level here in this episode. Yeah. And also is literal gatekeeping, literally keeping the gate. Yeah. You know, from the regressives to the progressives. I think they were actually one time, you know, maybe they hinted as their name is progressives. But that's it's like any any situation where you've seen this happen, you know, in in real life, you know, or in, you know, a series or a movie, you can tell and you can tell that those people who are on the side of using these tools in order to control the environment, these people are the villains. Nobody invented the music sphere in the Alpha Quadrant. Instead, they put dice in it and called it the Pop-O-Matic. Uh, so we have made it through the throes of observations and wrapping up the passionate discussion that we've had about this episode. Uh, it was one to remember, if I will. I'm sorry, remember what? What did I say? I don't remember. Rem remember. Remember. So, this is one uh, to remember. It's a fantastic episode. We had a lot of great discussion, all jokes aside. And as we do here at the end of every Mission Log episode, we take a look at if this episode does indeed hold up, or if it doesn't, does it withstand the test of time? And then finally, we look into the morals, meanings, or messages, if we were able to mine any, one or all three. So here we are with John. All what right. do you remember, remember. about remember? Remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel a little bit like a broken record because we say this kind of thing 
often, and it seems more and more often lately, especially as we get into Voyager, that there are episodes that on first glance, you feel one way or the other about it, maybe a little lukewarm about it, but then they really strike a different tone with you on the multiple rewatches that we do. And, And we're not necessarily like our audience in that respect because our audience may they may or may not watch something once to stay along the journey with us and then they listen to what we say and maybe they're basing it kind of off of a memory what their take is on an episode but this is one that i really would encourage a rewatch and maybe even another rewatch because the emotional beats keep hitting you harder each time you watch it and when you go in knowing what the twist is knowing what those moments are i feel like it's more effective to absorb you into those moments so the worst i can say about the episode is that it may not be a home run like like it may not ascend to the heights of the greatest star trek episodes ever made but look our show is not about creating ranks or lists <laughs> you mm-hmm. know our show is about discussing what it is about um and i have to say that yes this episode holds up better and better on rewatch than i initially gave it credit for and seeing it a few times really allowed me to fill in some of my own gaps with the story and it was sort of like watching a primer on what star trek is about you take these big bold, important ideas that are inspired by history, reshaped into a sci-fi parable, and it allows you to fill in the blanks whether wherever you like. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think you have to watch this a couple of times so you get the time to know these characters, absorb the relationships and their journey. Really, you can watch it for the plot. And you can also watch it for the big ideas. I I think you need those two times to take in both. Got to say, MVP here is Roxanne. No question about it. It it may feel at first glance like the story is sort of meandering and purposely obtuse. I, I, I feel like part of that is by design. So you can go back and fill in those gaps. But Roxanne, she is the one who grounds this and make every moment feel more real and more urgent, which I think, by the way, if we go back to that original premise that this was intended as a TNG story with Deanna in the center, I think this works more intensely because you have Roxanne slash Bilana taking on the emotional weight of what happened. So, yes, it it holds up. I I think you need that little caveat to say you watch it, but then you watch it again. And and I think it hits even more powerfully that way. Uh, How about you, Norm? Yeah, I mean, it holds up for me. I I think that kind of like at this stage in the game, you know, in in science fiction or just kind of like in storytelling in general, we're talking October 1996. Mm Mm-hmm. Most if all of the stories have already been told in one form or another. You know, there <laughs> yes, are there's yes. the quote seven basic plot stories, right? Yeah. And uh, the, the the difference in the varying themes thereof. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, in this episode, you're seeing themes of star-crossed lovers. You're seeing themes of dream manipulation. You're seeing themes of gaslighting history. It's yeah. not that these are original by any stretch of the imagination. You know, mm-hmm. in and of themselves or in combination of all of them together. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not the story that they're leaning on or they're borrowing from. It's how they're telling the story for this purpose. 
you know, and with the talent that they have behind this story. You're right. Roxanne brings this to life. Yeah. I mean, it's it's her it, it, it you know, it's her performance as Bellana, it's her performance as Bellana playing at Karenna. And mm-hmm. then, you know, all these resolutions in between and then how she's bouncing off of all these characters, you know, especially uh, the actor who plays Danith, you know, and then that relationship. Mm-hmm. So you're watching all of this and you're like, OK, I've seen it, you know, uh, that's very Romeo and Juliet ish. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, I'm still seeing something fresh because never would I put Romeo and Juliet and a parable of the Holocaust in the same episode. And yeah. that is what really subverted my expectations. When I really understood what Danith was saying about the ships that went nowhere and then how they were like thermally cleansed, you know, oh from history, God. I'm like, yeah, that that rang so clear of what they were saying about history and especially human history and kind of like the cover up that has happened over time in some cases regarding the Nazi Holocaust or the, the Holocaust of mm-hmm. uh, perpetrated by the Nazis upon the Jewish mm-hmm. people, you know? So yeah, once you realize what's going on in this episode, you're like, okay, new story being told here. And then yeah. you rewatch it with that same premise in mind. And then the episode changes tone and yeah. now you're watching it for a completely different reason. And then you see more of the subtext and subtlety that are layered in this episode, even more so like, why would they cast a Bruce Davison? For this episode, because he has a certain look that they were trying to push, yeah. you know, as Jareth, as yeah. the leader of this, you know, movement against the regressives, right? Yeah. Him on that podium now takes a completely different meaning when you watch it multiple times, you yep. know? So you have that involved. And I think that makes this episode so remarkable in the telling. But I know that this is a weird side note. And I know that I mentioned it earlier in observations, but one of the things that really struck me just so out of the blue in this yeah. episode is how good the fashion is in this episode. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. I know yeah. it's strange, but it's yeah. still part of the episode. And I think that everyone looked so good in their non-duty attire. I think that just the cuts, the fabric, the way that the actors wore them, the way that they all worked together in concert with the Anaran theme and Neelix's mess hall. I just felt that they weren't trying so hard to make things look like they belong in the future. It well, really again, felt it, it like just, natural. Yeah. Right. It, it just, it serves a purpose dramatically because when you buy that scene, you buy the total relaxation. You buy like, oh, look, finally, Voyager is not stuck fending off Kazon or battling some other group of people. Like, they are completely relaxed. You have to get sucked into that and go like, oh, man, all we have to worry about now is just sitting around and seeing who's going to play the space ball next. <laughs> <You know? laughs> got to yeah. make that. Got to TM that. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you're right, John. Uh, in in the, just the terms of this episode, uh, it really does have this this wonderful resolution of – uh, taking stories that we've known over the, ho- the course of history, adding in some really interesting inflection points where they make you stand up and take notice that this actually is a part of a history just told in that science fiction genre. Hey, look, a part of history told through a science fiction filter. That's Star Trek, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, that's Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. All right. So big old themes, historic moments, gaslighting, star-crossed lovers, the whole uh, – all of that. Mm-hmm. What's the takeaway for morals, meanings, messages? So I wanted to return to a quote that I brought up earlier where where uh, Balana and Janeway were talking about what's happening with the Adaran people and the history that's being covered up. And Balana says, it's not just a matter of history. This could happen again if no one knows it happened before. 
Mm-hmm. And then the Captain Janeway says, we simply have no right to get involved. And it, it, it made me remember a very specific quote that I think is maybe it's a moral or maybe it's a message somewhere in along those lines. Maybe it's all three. Mm-hmm. And it's rare if that actually bring in all three morals, meanings and messages together. But the quote that I remembered about this was the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing, mm-hmm. which allows history to repeat itself. So even though that, but you know, I'll give Janeway credit where credit is due here. Her hands were tied. She knows that she has taken a beating, you know, in social media in the Delta Quadrant. The Kazon have like mm-hmm. basically like ruined her profile. Yeah. Voyager, every time yeah. it goes from planet to planet, you know, there yeah. are warnings. There are people like this is the death ship. Don't do business with them. Don't deal right. with them, etc. So right. now she finally gets involved with a race of people who are friendly, who are allies, who can become friends. And this mm-hmm. happens. And she's like, well, I can't wash my hands away from all of it. But at the same time, though, I can't really do anything politically against them because they haven't really done anything politically to me. So, but I don't have to do anything. I can encourage someone else to do something, you know, and that's where I think that exchange with Balana at the end is fabulous because all Janeway is saying is like, it's not that we can't do anything is that you need to do something. You, Balana, were the one who was wronged. You, Balana, are the one who has all of these memories in her mind. And hey, you know what? There are a couple people that have that ability to be able to read your mind that are still left on the ship. So you might want to go visit them. So I think that was fantastic. I mean, doing the right thing is one of the most difficult things that we could ever do or choose to do as people. It's almost impossible. Fighting for a cause that you believe in is literally like Herculean when you try and muster up the courage to do it. So I'm going to leave my thoughts with a Chinese philosopher from the Chinese philosopher Mencius, who says, Mm -hmm. death is something I hate, but there is something that I hate more than death. And so there are perils that I will not avoid. Nice, and nice and, and you, John, what did you get from it? Yeah, <laughs> from yeah. The well, look, I mean, I, I think there are so many themes to explore here, uh, so many depths to mine. Uh, but you pointed out a word that is so crucial to this episode, and you pointed it out in your uh, in your speech in your oration just a moment ago and that is truth and and that is what this episode at its heart is about truth is such an easy thing to manipulate and in this episode that is so full of chilling scenes the one that will stick with me is this very short sequence and that is going from karenna betraying dathan to watching his execution to then calmly explaining to kids why the regressives had to go away and that they destroyed themselves. I cannot tell you, just watching those three scenes back to back, absolutely mind-boggling, and yet you you understand it on some level. You get it. You, you go like, yeah, this is what people do. And and I can only imagine the same sort of mental gymnastics that other people, real people, not in science fiction, but our real world have done with themselves to, again, justify their own horrific behavior and try to whitewash their past or their people's past or any any past. 
They actively suppress the truth in favor of what's convenient, what's comfortable, and turn it into something that allows them to sleep at night. But a, a personal truth like that isn't the truth necessarily with a capital T. So we have an obligation always to uncover the truth, as unpleasant, as inconvenient, and as difficult as it may be. And as we often do, you just quoted some of the greats. Well, I'm going to quote another great, because I hope we all remember Captain Picard, who said, the first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. It is the guiding principle on which Starfleet is based, and if you can't find it within yourself to stand up and tell the truth about what happened, you don't deserve to wear that uniform. And I like to think that maybe we can all try to have that uniform on all the time. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Sacred Ground. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Suddenly having new memories in your head? Now you know what I feel like after a firmware upgrade. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.